Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Good evening. Welcome to episode 000026 of the mission. My name is Daniel James. I am the host through to eight this evening. I'd like to start off by acknowledging the traditional owners from which I am broadcasting today. The Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I'd like to thank Vaughan for another excellent episode of Double Bounce. He just brings it every Tuesday, Tuesday in, Tuesday out. And he'll be back next Tuesday to spin some more tunes for you. So I hope you're all having a lovely evening and that you're all well. We've uh, covered a lot of issues thus far on the mission. Issues like the Uluru Statement from the Heart, Victorian Treaty Process, Domestic Violence, Homelessness Amongst Aboriginal Women, prisoner record reform, the repatriation of human remains to the traditional lands, and that's just to name a few. One issue that we haven't touched on um, so far is the rate in which Aboriginal children in 2019 are being removed from their families. A recent Family Matters report has revealed that Aboriginal kids are 10.2 times more likely to be removed from their families and placed in out-of-home care than non-Aboriginal kids. It's a startling statistic and not one spoken about too much in the mainstream, so we will be very fortunate to be joined in the second half of the show by the new CEO of the Secretariat of National Aboriginal and Islander Childcare, Snake, Richard Weston, Weston, to uh, take us through some of those issues. They are numerous and they are complex. But shortly, and also in studio, I'll be joined by Claire G. Coleman, a Noongar writer and poet, if you've been to a bookshop in recent times, there's a fair chance that you would have seen her latest novel, The Old Lie. Old Lie. I'll have a yarn to her about that, but also I want to find out a little bit more about her method and her writing process, because she's not only extremely talented as a writer, but she's also very prolific. So hopefully another informative and entertaining show coming away. If you want to get in touch with me, just go to my Twitter handle at Mr. TT James. Optional if you want to use the hashtag, hashtag the mission triple R. If you feel like it, no pressure. So sit back. Or sit upright and just let it wash all over you. This is the mission on Triple R 102.7 FM. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. If you want to hear, you know, the latest and greatest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander music, just tune in to Still Here, 1 pm on uh, Sunday afternoons with Neil and Co. But uh, to tonight's first guest, Claire G. Coleman is a Noongar woman whose family have belonged to the south coast of Western Australia since 
before time was recorded, really. She writes fiction, essays and poetry, and she's been an avid traveller for a long time around this continent that we now know as Australia. Her first novel, Terranalius, was critically acclaimed and was shortlisted amongst other prizes for the uh, 2018 Stella Prize. In 2016, she was the winner of the Black and Right Fellowship, which she just commented off there was a game-changer for her. Her second novel, The Old Lie, asks us to remind ourselves of the lies told in the writing of history. The old lie is that the that it is honourable to die for one's country, that war is a part of nationalism. In her book, The Old Lie, the war is fought largely in space between the Federation, Earth, and the conglomeration, other planets. It's a great book, told skillfully and creatively, and Claire is in the studio with us now. Claire, welcome to the mission. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, Congratulations on the book. What, was the, what would be the main takeout you would want the reader to walk away with after reading it? Um, I'd like the reader to um, understand that there's nothing kind of pleasant about Australia's, well, particularly World War I and World War II history. Uh, the Aboriginal diggers were treated, went away to war and then returned as non, still as non-citizens, which really, by no stretch of the imagination, is that acceptable. And I, I want people to understand that. Just like in Terra Nullius, I wanted people to understand the colonisation event a bit better than they did. I want people to understand how the Black Diggers felt a bit more than they did when I wrote The Old Lie. So you, you've taken you know, a, a sci-fi route to, to, to mm-hmm. tell that story. So you've pulled the concept back and you've taken it into space for us to look back at the world mm-hmm. and see it for what it is. What made you take that route and when did you come to the decision to do that? Um, I, I don't think there was a moment when I took the decision to make it sci-fi because it's like, to me, it was such an obvious thing to do. Uh-huh. Um, it's, it's both, there's two things. You know, one point is the what they call the Overwatch effect. I don't know if you've heard of yes, that, which is yes. people have seen the Earth from above, from away from it realise how small it is. Change their change. perspective and everything. It's kind of using a bit of that on change the perspective by going outside of the situation, look at it from outside. But there's also the fact that um, if you go into it, if you go into it, Stories about Aboriginal Australia through historical fiction. I think people have got excited. Some people are starting to get a bit of fatigue about that. They're starting to read historical fiction or factual books and go, "Oh, another Aboriginal trauma story." And mm. I'm not saying those those books are extremely valuable books. And I, I love them myself, but I want to take a different approach so that um, people who wouldn't who would switch off at the thought of hearing our stories would maybe switch back on again. Yeah, and it seems to me that this book has been just as critically acclaimed as. Terranalius, have you been pleased by the response? I've been overwhelmed by the response. Um, people say that it's hard for um, women writers and for Aboriginal writers to get press. Well, I've had a lot of press. I'm quite pleased by that. Um, and so far, the reviews have been actually more positive than Terranalius had a lot mm. of really positive reviews. Of course, I don't know what the sales are like yet. The book's only two months old, but we'll see if it, if it sells as well as well. Gee, it seems like it's been out longer than that. I know, Just two months. Everywhere, um, every bookstore I walk in, it's, it's front and centre. And it, one of the great things at the moment is that there is so much talent around, amongst Aboriginal writers. Um, you walk into any bookstore and you'll see their work um, front and centre, really. Do you think we're in a kind of a renaissance 
of Aboriginal writing and writers at the moment? Oh, I think we are. I think, and I think there's a couple of possible potential causes for that. One is maybe people who um, haven't written before getting confidence by the success of our peers. Mm-hmm. See people like Kim or yeah. Alexis Wright um, succeeding or, or Melissa Lukashenko doing well in awards. And they well, I could do that too. And part of it, I think, is that finally... Um, the publishing industry is getting interested enough to publish people's stories and there's more stuff being published now because um, no matter how many great stories are written, if they're not published, very few people are going to ever get to know the stories. So I think those... And also the fact... It's possible, of course, that, um, that there are people now now writing who could have... who maybe if they were um, not Indigenous would have been writing their novels 20 years ago and they've mm. waited now because the time is right... It could be that there's just a watershed moment, that for some reason all the great stories are coming at once, or it could just be that Aboriginal writers are just plain talented. Who mm. knows? Well, yeah, there's a fair bit of that latter, I, I think. Um, you're, of course, you know, in my opinion, one of the, the, the... I won't say better because I don't want to diminish anyone else's work, but you're super talented. Thank you. You have a knack that a lot of writers don't have. In my, in my view, a lot of writers have the ability to tell... Uh, a great yarn, a great story, but don't have the ability to write it well. Mm. And then there's other writers who are, you know, very um, eloquent and flowery and, and beautiful in their in their language and use of metaphor, but can't tell a decent yarn. It seems to me, and from the work that I've written of yours, is that that you're able to to do both. Uh, are you conscious of that when you're writing? I do what there's a bit of advice I read once about writing it said that the best books are written when the writer just writes the story that they want to read that they go I haven't read that story anywhere I want to I want to write that so I can so it can be there in the world and I just do that I write how I would want to read it and I write what I'd like to read in the way I would like to read it and it turns out that um, other people like it as much as I do. Yeah, it would seem so. Um, but it's not, it's not a case of consciously deciding I'm going to use a certain language or a certain story. The stories almost unfold on their own um, within my head. I don't, they unfold without me really planning them. They just appear. And then um, I just write them in... Some, some People actually said that a lot of the time you, you can actually... Um, you can hear my voice... Well, people know me that can hear my voice when they're reading my books because... They'd sound not entirely unlike how I talk if I'm sitting around having a conversation. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's not an easy thing to, to pull off on the page, you know. No. As um, many of you budding writers out there in the audience would know. You won the um, 2016 Black and Right Scholarship. Mm-hmm. Where was your writing before you were bestowed with that? I hadn't done anything. Mm. I hadn't published anything. I'd... I'd started. I'd written poetry and done performance poetry before. Um, never had anything published. I'd had a couple of articles published in um, a student magazine at uni. Um, had done some academic writing, but I uh, Terra Nullius was my first completed proper manuscript. Um, I so, but before it came out, I got other stuff published because I was scared that if I um, um, I had this fear. Um, I was afraid that if I had my first poetry or essays published after Terranullius came out, that people would only publish them because it was because of Terranullius. Yeah, right. So once when Terranullius was signed with a publisher, I I immediately um, ground my ass to atoms trying to get an essay and a poem published somewhere else before it came out in the like in the lead up time, gotcha. so that I would know that it was actually 
my writing, not the success of my novel that got me published in those as well. Absolutely. I know exactly what you're saying. You, you don't want to be in a space where your reputation precedes you. You, you, yes. you want each piece to speak for to itself. To speak for itself. And you want the scrutiny of getting it published to be the same as just anybody else. And, and especially for my, for my own emotional well-being at the time because I was terrified of being a, a kind of one-hit wonder. Yeah. Uh, it turns out I well I haven't been so that's good but I, <laughs> that fear was that fear is real the fear that um, that my first novel could be could have been a fluke was terrifying mm. mm-hmm. absolutely it is seventeen past seven here on Triple R one hundred two point seven FM you're listening to the Mission my name is Daniel James I'm speaking with author and Noongar woman Claire G Coleman um, not only are you a very very good writer but you're also very prolific. Um, Tell us about, you know, for some of the writers out there and for me selfishly as well, uh, how do do you find the time to carve out and and produce as much as you do? Um... In a way, it's it's more the the hard thing is is idea time because once I've once I've got an idea, mm-hmm. um, they can come. Out. I mean, most people if they really try can can throw out a thousand words in a few hours. Yeah, right. So if you've got something to write and you've got a, a few hours, you can probably do it. Right, almost anyone can. Um, the hard bit is finding the mental space to come up with the ideas to to write, like come up with what to write or how to write or what the angle will be or mm. or what makes it different from what everyone else has written. That's the hard bit. And um, I just find time for that in every moment. Right. Um, you've got five minutes at a tram. You could be thinking about an idea or scribbling down an idea or writing. But if I don't have an idea, mm. I, I just can't do anything. I will literally just sit and people – one thing I find useful, and this is a bit of useful advice for any budding writers out there, yep. um, don't believe in such a thing as writer's block. Mm-hmm. People do have a situation where they can't actually get anything out onto a computer screen onto a page, but that's not block. That's thinking. Right. It's incubating your ideas. Your thoughts and ideas have to become a, a, a piece, and, um, and they do that by... Your, by your thoughts kind of mashing and, and, and melding and merging until they become something more beautiful. But they do that, they don't necessarily do that while you're actually had the time to sit down and write at the time. Uh, so you have to be ready to start writing as soon as you have the idea. And that's the hard bit. If you've got a day job, that's really extremely difficult because mm. you might have the idea while you're at work. Yep. But you have to be ready for the ideas when they come and you have to allow yourself the time to think about what you're doing without um, the fear that it's writer's block. So how much, you know, I always find that um, it's really good to let an idea just digest, you know, commit to that idea, but let the, the, the angles and, the, and the, you know, any sub-ideas or subplots around those, the, the initial idea, just to walk away and actually let it digest because... Mm-hmm. I find that writing and actually sitting in front of the screen and, and, and tapping away is as much a subconscious type process as it is a, a an intellectual conscious one. I agree completely, and I've um I've I've had commissions. Uh, one of the reasons I'm so prolific is because I accept commissions. I accept almost every commission I'm given if there's money involved. Yeah, right. I don't believe in doing commissions for free, but if someone asks me to commit for commission and there's money involved, I'll certainly I'll, I'll say I'll do it and then I force myself to come up with something. And that force should be prolific, but um, I find if I get stuck, I'll do something like go for a walk, mm-hmm. um, get something to eat, 
or have a shower. Yeah. Those three things, any of those three things, because they're such automatic kind of robotic behaviours that, that they, give your, they give your thoughts time to churn and, and come out. Yeah. Well, Melissa Lukashenko, you know, said to, to, to me and a whole bunch of other people one time when she was given a, you know, a bit of a, a lecture to some, some budding writings is that the, the job of the writer is to pay attention. Um, with that in mind, how do you see the state of race relations in, in Australia at the moment? How do you think we're tracking with reconciliation, closing the gap, the gap and, and all of that? Um, terrible. I think, I think um, there's certainly seem to be more people out there with a, a more kind of accepting view of Aboriginal rights now than there used to be. But there's also a large number of extremely rabid people who are even worse than there used to be in the past. And uh, the governments are about as bad as they've been in in 20 years, I would say. Um, the current Liberal federal government is pretty much as bad as they get for um, Aboriginal rights. But there's a lot of also a lot of people who um, have changed their thinking, and I'm hoping that um, the next generation of young people, if they can, if we can avoid them getting their brains polluted by far right politics on the internet, will will bring about a, a better time. But I think it's a bit. I think it's pretty bad right now, but I think it's... I see... Um, I, I'm, people ask if I'm pessimistic or optimistic. I mm. always say I'm pessimistic but hopeful. Right. I expect the worst but hope for the best. I expect the worst right now, but I'm hoping that things are going to get better. Um, I think that's where we are right now. And I think the Uluru statement, is, it's a complicated issue because there's a lot of people who think it doesn't go far enough or it's not sovereignty, but it's also... Um, the old people out in the out in the bush, a lot of the and a lot of the land councils are in support of it because they want something. Um, it's very difficult because one the one thing that always gets me into into a into a pickle is this idea that um, we should fight until we've got um, until we've got land back and sovereignty and until things change as good to the optimal to the optimal situation we can have. But then there's going to be a whole bunch of um, activists who've been fighting all their lives who are going to die and not seeing anything. Mm. So it's a very, it's all very difficult. And I'm not even, sure, I'm, I know that I don't have the answers. My main thing I do, rather than trying to come up with the solutions to race relations in Australia, is try and observe where things are going wrong and point it out. The, the kind of the job of the of the fifth estate of. Of politics, though the fourth estate, whatever it is, to observe and point and establish and point out what's going wrong, so that the democracy can function. I think it's important to, and I agree that um, writers' job is actually to observe mm. and to, and to document, especially if we're writing nonfiction. Our, our responsibility is to observe and document, and that's extremely important. And um, I don't, like I said, I don't have answers. I only have, I can, I all I do is ask the questions. Yeah. Um. With that in mind, I mean, you've obviously, being as prolific as you are, you have a, a series, no doubt, of projects on the go at the moment. Mm-hmm. What are you working on at the moment? I'm in the final stages of my own internal edit of my third novel. Wow. Um, I'm in the initial stage of thinking about my fourth novel. Yep. <laughs> 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 which is an important long-winded stage. Sometimes you'll think about a novel for six months and then write it in two months. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's, that's that gestation period. Yeah, again. the gestation period is extremely important. And I'm gestating my fourth novel right now. Gotcha. Um, I like the yeah, I, I like how you, you highlight you you highlight that as that's a step in the process. It's an important step in the process. Possibly the most important is to gestate what you're doing and to think of to mull over the ideas until they click together. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm doing so. I'm doing that with my fourth novel. I know the initial idea and what I want to do with it, but I don't know how to do it yet. Do you want to tell us what it is? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not going to tell you what it is. Uh, I thought it was worth a trick. Um, anyway, thank you so much for your time. Um, stay staunch on, on, the twi- on the tweets, as, the as you are. Um, send those trolls to hell. Um, the Old Lie is available in uh, all good bookstores, and Terra Nullis is still on the shelves at the moment too, it isn't is. it? Yep. Yep. Claire, Claire G. Common, thank you so much for your time. Th- thanks for having me. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. And you are indeed listening to Triple R 102.7 FM. This is The Mission with me, Daniel James, to tonight's second guest. Uh, recent reports like the Family Matters Report 2019 and a report by the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child revealed that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children are young, and young people around the country experience widespread and persistent discrimination and disadvantage impacting on current and future generations. On top of that, they are 10.2 times more likely to be removed from their families 2.5 times more likely to be developmentally vulnerable than other children when they start school, and 17 times more likely to be in juvenile detention. Richard Weston is the recently appointed CEO of the Secretariat of National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Care, SNAKE for short. SNAKE supports family matters in addressing the overrepresentation of our children in child protection, including foster care. Prior to his recent appointment, Richard was Richard was the Healing Foundation CEO for over nine years. The organisation supported 175 community-led Indigenous healing projects and assisted more than 45,000 community members and 7,000 stolen generation survivors on their healing journey. Richard has graciously given up some of his time to speak with us and he's in studio at the moment. Richard, welcome to the mission. Uh, thanks, Daniel. It's good to be here. It's 2019. Why are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children over 10 times more likely to be removed from their families? Well, it's a complex issue. Um, I think there's, from my point of view, there's two two factors at play. Um, firstly, there's the historical consequences of, um, you know, colonisation, but in particular the stolen generations throughout the 20th century has, uh, you know, decimated families and communities by removing children um, and placing them in institutions, missions and so forth. Um, And that's created an ongoing intergenerational impact of trauma, but also created um, vulnerability and and some weaknesses in our communities that um, in the current, in today's world, in in contemporary Australia... um, brings families and children under the notice of authorities because Mm. we just don't have the strengths that we once had um, to deal with challenges and upsets that occur in our community. So there's these historical factors um, that are impacting um, and then we're we're operating in mainstream systems that don't recognise that 
historical impact. Um, and the, the responses we get to, um, you know, the needs of our families, of, uh, of vulnerable families who need support and wraparound services. So when they're dealing with issues in their families like mental health issues or violence or drug and alcohol challenges, um, there's no support there. So it, mm. what ends up happening, the system has a the met, basic method for the child protection system, which is, I guess, what we're focusing on, is is to report, substantiate and remove. Um, there's no circuit breaker there to, to have a close look at the family, the impact of those historical factors, and provide support so that kids can stay in the family, that parents and um, and the rest of the family can get support and help with any of the challenges that they're dealing with, but keeping kids in their culture, in their family, in their relationships, their kinship relationships, and you know, keeping that strong connection to their, their identity. So there's two factors, historical factors mm. and a system that um, is focused on you know, punitive responses operating at the tertiary end of, of a system when um, we need them to focus more at the, the other end where we're doing early intervention and prevention work. Could you could you even really describe it as a system when it comes to dealing with with these issues around you know for, for First Nations kids? Was it is that too generous to call it a system, or is it just a sort of a, an ad hoc at the you know band aid solution type approach that we we see dealt by states and territories across the country? Look, I, I think in terms of the way it's structured, it is a system. There's a system of 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 protective me of protection protecting children that's the that's the headline mm. um, but in terms of what you're saying there about the responses I think that's what we get we get um, we get responses you may call them band-aid responses I call them punitive measures yeah um, there's a whole range of different ways you can look at it I, I guess or or term that but the result is the same. Our kids keep falling through the cracks. Families, um, you know, become disconnected from each other, particularly when children, um, you know, move out of the family, move out of the community, become distant from their culture and their, and their identity. We know, and we know this, and Australia knows this, that when that happens, we know this because of the stolen generations, we know it's happened, that when they are taken from their families and communities and culture, their, their life their life trajectory is is full of challenges and, and poor outcomes. Yeah, it's not easy to see why you've been appointed as the CEO of Snake with that experience you've had, you know, dealing with the, you know, intergenerational trauma, seeing its impact on generation after generation. Um, one thing you've highlighted in the Family Matters report, which is supported by over 75, I believe it's more now, 75 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organisations have, have signed up to commit to stand behind that report. Mm -hmm. One thing that you've highlighted is Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids continue to fall between the cracks. What, what, what do you mean by that? Well, we have a, we have a system where, um, I, I guess, <laughs> calling it a system again. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we can't think of a better word. Um, look, I, it's, it's just really this... this the, the design of, of the responses to our people in terms of dealing with um, the challenges, the social challenges we face is the, these... And, and they're very... You know, they are some very disruptive issues in, in communities and families. Um, it doesn't... There's a mismatch. There's mm. a mismatch, mismatch between the way um, governments act to protect children um, and 
and the way that they respond to the needs of our people. There's a mismatch. They're not responding to our needs. They're, they're responding in a very narrow way to what is a broad and complex challenge. But the way our people fall through the cracks is through this um, system. We have a federal system where we have states providing the, um, the services, Commonwealth providing the funding, um, and then the, the, the Commonwealth really using, using that... Um, that structure as a, as an excuse really not to provide leadership and mm. so they they say i think very early on when we were trying to get um you know a child protection target in the new closing the gap process the the minister at the time um nigel um was saying look uh, you know that's a state's responsibility yeah and that's what we hear a lot of um but what we're calling on through the Family Matters report, and um, we followed it up with a position paper on for a national yeah. commissioner, is that um, you know we need to draw those elements together in a coordinated approach under Commonwealth leadership. You're listening to the mission. I'm Daniel. I'm speaking with Richard Weston, the CEO of Snake, the Secretariat of National Aboriginal and Islander Child Care. Now, you have released a, um, a position paper. In that position paper, you do call for a National Commissioner for Aboriginal uh, and Torres Strait Islander children and young people. Mm. Uh, how would that position go to resolving some of these issues that we're talking about? Well, I, I think it gives us... It would give us a dedicated focus on um, supporting better outcomes, well-being outcomes for our kids. Um, you know, you, you, you mentioned at the, at the start, you talked about um, widespread and pers- persistent disadvantage and discrimination. Mm. Um, and we don't have enough... We don't have a mechanism that joins up the efforts to, to support our children and their families. Um, we see the National Commissioner as being a mechanism to do that. Mm. And we have, you know, some really important principles that under that would underpin that, that, that are derived from um, uh, the United Nations and their, their yep. declarations on human rights, but certainly would need to be a legislated role, um, have a degree of independence of government through that legislation, um, be reporting to government, be able to conduct inquiries, um, but also to be able to bring... Um, you know, bring in some accountability with the states and the, the other jurisdictions, and and further to a national position, we'd like to see the states and jurisdictions ad- adopt what's been done in Victoria and South Australia, yeah. where they've appointed children's commissioners in those states. So, would would the ultimate aim would be to have that national commissioner and, and, and get them to work with um, commissioners that are either established already or yet to be established in every state and territory. Is that the way you see it? Yeah, we'd have a, net, you know, we'd have a, a, a national commissioner, but we'd have a, have a network of state-based, jurisdictional-based um, positions as well. But, you know, and, and the reason to call for that, I think, is, is about how challenging this issue is. If we don't stop our children going into the child protection system, you know, we're going to see a doubling of the numbers within 10 years. Yeah. Um, and that... You know, and that just spells out for our families and communities, or many of our families and communities, uh, devastation. You know, futures that are uh, already, you know, kids getting behind the eight ball already, um, you, you know, and challenges in getting their education, having a settled and stable home life, you know, being strong in their identity and, um, and connected to their culture. And I think we can't underestimate and underplay 
the importance of culture and identity. Um, it's what kids who come, Aboriginal kids who come out of care, tell us that that's what they want to do. That when kids become come of age, they go looking for their family, they go looking for who they are, they go looking for that connection and those relationships. Um, and so, you know, a, a national Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Children's Commissioner, an identified identified position, um, someone that is skilled in the in the children's space that could um, bring all those stakeholders, those state jurisdiction, um, state and territory stakeholders, and um, state based and territory based commissioners you know, into a, into a collective mechanism that can start to address these, you know, these problems that are seemingly hard to solve. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we believe they can be solved, but, you know, it requires, um, you know, unfortunately it requires government to listen to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, listen to our solutions, take heed of our voices. Um, and that's that's really one of the hardest parts in, in what we're trying to do, I think. Do you, do you have anyone in mind? For the commissioner's role, um, <laughs> there's a few people in you know that would would run through my my head, but obviously I wouldn't mention them on <laughs> on on, uh, on air. But um, look, we have we have people out there that could do the gig, I reckon. Yeah. And um, you know, this is it's so important. Look, our children are so critical to our culture. You know, they're they're the mechan- they're, they're the they're the carriers of our culture. That's how we yeah. transmit it into yeah. the into the future. Um, you know, if we have healthy healthy children, so healthy babies, healthy children, um, healthy teens, you know, we become healthy adults. We become strong contributors to our communities, strong com- strong contributors to the economy. Yeah, I don't think I don't think a lot of people realise that. You know. Um Birth birth weight is an essential an essential factor in getting a kid on the right track from from the earliest of ages. If a kid is under underweight, then there's every chance that they're going to suffer from ill health and other issues as as we move along. You, you talk about um, kids in foster care coming out of that and really being sort of um, at a loss with with their own culture in a lot of circumstances. That's one of the reasons we're practical. It's always the effort is always made to place a kid in kinship care where, where possible well there is a there, yes the aboriginal child placement principle operates within the protection system but in many instances it hasn't been implemented as it was intended yeah. um, it's been used the effort to find um, you know suitable kin to look after children that do need to be removed has been in many cases ad hoc it's been a um, a tokenistic effort it's been a tick box approach um, I mean those th- that child placement principle is a very powerful tool and if it's applied properly it can um, help children that do have to be removed stay connected to their culture and identity, which is really important in terms of their long-term future. But ultimately, it, it helps them, you know, if they are in care for a long time, when they come out, you know, they know who they are. They know mm. where they're from. They know their relationships. They're able to to, to connect with their families. But, um, you know, it, it, places like Queensland and Victoria are starting to do more work with, with government and, and with, um, you know, other service providers to, to really make sure that um, 
principle is implemented properly, and it, but but it is more effort that's needed around the country. And with with the the, the family matters report that that you've you've released, is do you feel like you're getting any traction in, in Canberra around this issue at the moment? No, no, yeah. <laughs> um, look, I look, I think that's probably a bit unfair. I mean, I I, I was I was listening to Claire talk, and she was. Influencing me, I think. Just, <laughs> just things um, resonating left, right, and centre with you. Yes. No, but I, I think. Look, it's um, we had um, we had Michelle Landry there, who's the assistant minister for families and children, at the launch of the report. We mm-hmm. were really pleased to have her there. And we had a number of other politicians, and uh, from the government side, but also from the Labor side and from the Greens. So, you know, it is an issue that the politicians are interested in. Yep. Um, and they're looking at. Um, but in terms of a response from government, we, we haven't, you know, it's been been very um, a softer approach at the moment, a softer response. But, look, I think momentum is building from our end. We, you know, the Family Matters report is a very um, well-constructed piece of work. It's, um, it is. It's yeah. comprehensive. It's well-researched. Um, the data is very reliable. Um, you know, it's a great resource and uh, for, for helping people understand um, the challenges that we face. It also highlights a few areas, you know, some of the things that are, are starting to work well, what we might call green shoots, the things yep. that can be built on. Um, but uh, I think overall it, it's, try, it's saying more efforts needed and that's, and that's why we, we're calling for this national, um, to, dedicated National Children's Commissioner, but, uh, you know, and, and also with a, a, a national strategy for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids because I... If we get it right for our kids, you know, we're going to close the gap. That's yeah. that's what will happen. Well, we can't we can't see it as any way acceptable as kids being seventeen times more likely to end up in, in youth detention. We can't have prison populations that are made up thirty percent by, by Aboriginal people. Aboriginal people only make up three percent of the population. Uh, there's so much unfinished business in this country. Um, if you want to actually have a look at um, the report, you can actually go to www.snake.org.au or you can go to um, familymatters.org.au and I encourage you to, uh, to read the report, share it as widely as you can. There's a hashtag that goes with it, because of them we must, and Kids Commissioner. So, um, you know, get stuck in. If you uh, care anything about the first peoples of this, of this nation, by all means, get behind us and uh, we'll see some change in this area. Now, Richard, you, you, you've been based in Canberra, you're moving to Melbourne. How are you finding the tradition, transition to the world's most livable city? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, I'm finding uh, there's a lot of modesty with the Australians <laughs> about their, their. Look, we're really looking forward to it. I've lived a lot in the country. Um, I love, uh, you know, I love football. I love coffee. Um, really looking to, um, you know, uh, find a find a nice place for my family and, uh, you know, bringing a couple of my boys with me and my partner and. Uh, yeah, so we're looking forward to it. We're quite excited it. and excited by um, you know the challenge of the work, but um, yeah, a new a, a new challenge of moving in and settling into a new new space. And who do you support in the football? Uh, look, I'm a West Coast Eagles supporter. Okay, well I think that's where we're in the uh, we'll end the interview. <laughs> Richard Weston, CEO of Snake Sake, thanks so much for your time and best of luck with everything. You uh, have got a job ahead of you. Yeah, thanks very much, Daniel. Independently yours, Triple R. My time here 
with you in the Triple R Studios for this week's episode of The Mission is slowly but surely coming to an end. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I've enjoyed it. It's been um, very good to speak about uh, her new novel, Claire G. Coleman's book, The Old Lion, and speak about her creative process and to talk with Snake CEO Richard Weston if... Um, about, you know, issues that are really at the core of where we are at the moment as First Nations people in this country. If you want to listen back to the episode, you can visit rrr.org.au. You'll find old episodes of the mission there as well. Till next week, uru. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>